welcome to the Ethical Marketing Podcast. And this is our first podcast of 2023. So we thought that we would have a look back over some of the things that have been interesting, that we've enjoyed, that we've not enjoyed over the last 12 month period. So I'm here with Ishan and Andrew. So guys, is there anything you've liked or disliked or want to shout about? I've disliked the way in which a lot of last year was spent criticizing things that happen like COP27, the Just Stop Oil protests. It's all, this is bad, you must not do it, but it doesn't necessarily account for real life. And the fact that getting 192 countries to agree to anything is difficult, or actually we need to be able to eat. And for a starters, the UK doesn't grow enough food that if we got rid of all the cows, we'd be okay. And also, if you can't drive to work, you can't get paid. So there's always a the negative element of that rather than sitting down and having the discussions that need to be had to make this all work and applying pressure through lobbying through campaigning through applying pressure to government instead we're throwing milk all over sainsbury's and shutting down motorways the whole protest thing i I think we're going to have a longer discussion about this at some point in the future because I think it it is really interesting. I think it is important that we're aware of stuff that's happening in the world. But I think you also need to be aware that stopping using oil completely is just not practical. It's not going to happen. Not if people want, as you say, heat your homes. We're in a crisis at the moment where people can't afford to heat their homes. I, I think that it's important to realise that we need to look at not using things as much and looking at alternatives, but we're not in a position where we can just stop all of this stuff. We should maybe be working towards being in a position where we can reduce our reliance on on a lot of this thing. But it, it seems counterintuitive that we are saying we should stop using oil and at the same time we're looking at the COP27 thing and saying, well, that doesn't work and that doesn't work. And as you say, it's almost impossible to get everyone to agree. So we need to look at small victories but meaningful ones and do a lot of them i think instead of assuming it's going to be one massive victory yeah i think when you especially with cop 27 there was a lot of negativity and lots of questions to some extent quite rightly so but it was more mainstream than i expected it to be around what's it for what does it do it's actually just a weekend long jolly they don't achieve anything but we very quickly forgot that actually we are where we are and we are making progress because of COP27, because it's made an impact. We're heading to, we're looking like we're going to manage two degrees. That is amazing, considering it requires 192 countries to actually agree to do something. But then one point, then it's like, oh, that isn't good enough for 1.5. Yes, we need to reach 1.5. And yes, we're not going to get there at current pace, but you don't just change the political will of the world in a year. It takes years to do that. And I know we're running out of time and I know that's the counter argument, but not every country is a modern Western democracy where just because you care, it will change the outcome. One of the biggest things out of COP27 was the fact the Philippines signed up and actually immediately reduced the projections. By them signing up to the charters, they reduced the projections on global warming by, I think, 0.1 of a degree, just by themselves. Every country matters. If the Philippines is only having a 0.1 degree impact, then we have to look at who else is having impact. And then we have to talk about 
those countries that are much more difficult to get them to agree to this stuff, especially when they're not looking economically very strong and they're not necessarily democracies in the way we'd normally understand them. I think as well, it felt like over the last year that we've had very hostile media in a way that we maybe haven't had. And and that's hot media from across the board. I think we've had we've had some ridiculously stupid things coming from right wing media, but we've had some equally strange comments coming from left wing media. It's felt like it's maybe an easy attack at the moment is, oh, we're having to spend money on net zero or, or whatever. Net zero is something again, I I think will probably come up later, but I, I'm reminded of a news, and I say news very loosely, but a news personality in the UK where we are based who took a photo of themselves in the snow and made a comment about global warming not being a thing because look, you know, climate, why, why are we paying extra on our climate? Because look, it's snowing. And it's that kind of willful <laughs> ignorance because this person is not so stupid as they don't understand that this is a ridiculous argument. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because I feel like I've spent the whole year, last year, just saying that what we need now is regulation to come in. And actually that is happening. And I think there's this massive surge in kind of public awareness that's happened over the last few years has been beneficial to a point that it's created the environment where there can be more political pressure and there can be more attention. But then you do get into just these, quite frankly, ridiculous arguments and points like that example, where actually either side attacking each other, attacking the issue, none of it is getting anything done. And I can see where the frustration comes in a lot of these protests and in people saying, you know, the COP process isn't effective, it doesn't work because we've pushed the message for so long that it's action that's what we need. And that has been what's been pushed by the big oil companies to push us onto individual carbon footprints. But I think we've taken such a complex issue, we've distilled it down to individual action, which we know isn't the only Thing that we need and now we're trying to pull that back and say actually what are corporations doing what are governments doing but to understand that you have to understand how the whole system works and i think that's where people just get overwhelmed by it they get tired of it they don't understand it and that's not a narrative that fits into the way the media reports and the media gets clicks and sells papers back in the day so i just think it gets the waters get very muddied and actually what we need now is regulation if you look at last year and some of the progress that was made cop 27 like andrew was saying the client earth case against the uk government and the high court ruling that their net zero strategy isn't as effective as it should be so they now have got eight months from that ruling, so it'll be early this year, to come back and say, actually, here is a tighter strategy and here's what we're going to do. And then you've got EU regulation coming that is effectively going to be the equivalent of GDPR, but on sustainability reporting. And actually, a lot of the time, when you boil these arguments down to, well, how does that work? It's not working. What are they doing about it? What you're really calling for is transparency. And actually, the regulation that's coming and the way that's going to apply to at first big companies, but then water down to SMEs by 2028 is going to create that transparency because they're going to have to report in a really clear, in a really regulated way, what they are doing on their climate policies and on their sustainability as a whole. And I think that is really positive. 
that transparency is the core of everything, really. It's the core of COP. It's the core of the biodiversity conference. It's the core of all of them. Because realistically, if the Philippines is only, if it agrees to everything and it's only going to move the dial by 0.1, we're not getting out of this with individual action. The idea of calling for individual action and saying that we should all start businesses and start making change happen. The fact is, if a large multinational produces your packaging, the chances are it's not all recyclable. The chances are a proportion of it will be burned. The chances are it's probably using gas power stations to make the stuff. I mean, the fact is that you can't change those things as an individual. And I'm not saying that individual action isn't important. Do start a business. Do make a difference because every little counts. But it's the mainstream changes that will make the biggest difference, like the government's plastic tax. That has, you can see it already starting to have an effect in UK supermarkets. The amount of plastic that isn't recyclable is dropping, yes, slowly, but as the government ramps up that tax, it will start to have a big impact like the sugar tax did. And actually, if we concentrate on influencing and getting people to stand up, be counted and put pressure on their government, then we can make more change. It needs a global effort and then individual national efforts. We're not going to win the argument and win the survival of our species because that's what it actually comes down to. One of the things I have definitely seen over the last year coming up from the stuff I do for Ethical Marketing News is the sheer amount of stories coming up about supermarkets reducing plastic, about people no longer using certain chemicals in their processes. It really does feel like this year, this past year, we have seen more of those kind of changes and on a bigger scale. And it feels like having that is exactly what you're saying. You know, it's part of a, of a wider movement to do it. And nobody's going to like what I'm going to say here, and I've, we may get some letters, but my biggest win that I saw in 2022 was Rolls-Royce and the mini nuclear reactors, because that is a practicable way to get to net zero quickly and efficiently. And they make them, they already exist. It's what's in the Royal Navy's submarines. The technology is not new. None of it needs to be invented. Dump a few of those all over the country and you're all good, at least for a period, because without nuclear power, we're not getting through the next section. We're going to have to have a level of nuclear power to make it happen by 2030. But to see them actually come up with that and then to see the equivalent being done by the same organisations in the US and then to see the progress the innovation hubs are making in Scotland around fusion and the same out of Stanford, we are moving in the right direction. But first and foremost, we have to be able to power our countries and keep the heat on. One thing that's really struck me this year, but in, well, last year now, but in particular over the last few weeks, because we've been talking to lots of SMEs about their strategy for the year, is how our use of social media has changed so drastically since lockdown. And we don't hear about these good news stories and this progress in mainstream media, but we also don't hear about it on social media because of exactly the same thing. It doesn't get clicks. It's not controversial enough. It doesn't stoke that discussion and that debate that we know these platforms to kind of be the home of. And, you know, it's up until... Well, it still is the case that you're kind of expected to have an opinion on everything on social media. But what I found really interesting is that 
since lockdown and just the overconsumption of social media, we've all gone through that kind of Zoom fatigue, that moving away from how we consume certain types of content. And it just feels like we're moving back to these channels being more broadcast. And we're definitely finding that with the brands that we work with, the ones that are not chasing that high level of engagement anymore and are focusing on broadcasting lots of informative, educational, entertaining content, but not necessarily expecting their audience to reciprocate and to create and to comment and to share and to engage in the same way that they used to. Those are the ones that are having the success. And it's almost like these are becoming one-way broadcast channels again, because we've all hit that level of just sheer fatigue with the amount of stuff we're consuming and I know that a lot of the trend reports on kind of social media use and communities in general and online marketing are sort of talking about more niche communities and more focused interest groups and people being much more engaged on channels like WhatsApp and I think that's all really a hangover of that lockdown effect of just being online too much we're now being a lot more considered about how we're online but what I think might happen more this year is that we do get If we're starting to do that and we're starting to go back to just consuming on these platforms and and really carefully thinking about our well-being in the digital space, then logically it would follow that we're going to get more careful about curating our news feeds and about, about avoiding some of this sensationalist kind of extreme headlines and extreme stories. And I, I've noticed that a lot of people that I speak to in sustainability are looking for the more considered debate, the more positive news stories, the progress stories that you're talking about that aren't getting picked up. So I think that'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next year based on how it's gone so far. I felt in the last year we've seen marketing companies have a better handle on the importance of ethics. It feels like more and more companies are beginning to realise that actually this is something that, that can help you as a company. I would I would argue that that's all regulatory driven. I would argue that COP26, followed by ramping up of regulatory powers and clear plans to implement a stronger regulatory environment going forward, like the Green Claims Code, the stuff out of the EU that Sean mentioned earlier that I can never remember the name of. That's half the problem is you can't remember their names because they're 20-letter acronyms. But actually, this stuff is changing the way marketing is going to be done. It's changing the way you're allowed to talk about your product. And it's also fundamentally changing the product itself. And at which point, you don't have to be a genius. Even if you don't believe in any of it, you can see which way the wind is blowing. You can see that the government will start prosecuting you if you don't start doing something about it, if you don't play by the right rules in the right way. And there are giant multinationals that are trying to buck that trend and trying to stop it happening. But then they release a soap bar in a supermarket and find that actually the ethical one outsells because the moment you give the consumer the choice. But we shouldn't have to give the consumer the choice. It should just be a thing. And I think marketing departments are starting to realise that that is what the governments of the world are going to do. They're just going to say, we can't change individual behaviour patterns in time, so we'll do it the other way and we'll force the businesses to change. You get caught on the wrong side of that and your business will no longer exist. I think as well, there's a generational thing. I think you're getting younger people who are maybe more active in in that sort of field. I mean, I'm going to use someone who we spoke to here 
be the year before last now, I think, at Ben Downing at Havas, who's genuinely really interested in this stuff and pushing that forward within that business. And that is changing the way the business is done. And I think that he is just one of people across the country who are finding themselves in positions or new companies starting up who have ethics built into the into what they do. I think even the companies that don't, there is such a fear now about audience backlash and about your ads, not just not working and not getting cut through, but actually getting cut through for the wrong thing. And I think we saw that so much in the pandemic where every single car company was talking about the pandemic in their advertising and it just wasn't hitting the mark. We saw it with Black Lives Matter and how brands responded to that. We see it every year with Pride. And I think audiences are just getting so tired of that. And it comes back to that individual action conversation again. They want companies to be doing the work, but they don't necessarily want to be hearing about it in all of the advertising as a selling point. Because like you said earlier, Stuart, people have got other things on their mind. We're in the cost of living crisis. You know, you're struggling to heat your home and afford your food bill. You don't necessarily want to hear about what all the companies are doing. You actually want to see that impact happen. I think for me, one of the best campaigns, not just of last year, but that actually ever, and it rendered me completely speechless, was the John Lewis Christmas ad. I always love when the John Lewis Christmas ad comes out, but (laughs) that one last year, I just think completely hit the mark and was a really good example of getting that right and actually demonstrating because there was long-term commitment, there was give impact. It was using their platform to highlight an important issue without making it about them. So centralizing the issue and the impact rather than the brand. And I know there was a big kind of positive discussion came out of that from people that have been in care, have been in the in fostering about, how, you know, the impact of that and the long-term impact of starting those conversations. And I think demographically, it was really, really powerful in the way that they got cut through for an issue that maybe wouldn't get cut through in that way in those demographics without that platform. So over the last year as well, then we've all sort of been involved in our own things. I've been running ethical marketing use, but you guys, obviously we spoke about just towards the end of last year, your own campaign that you you ran. So I'm assuming that was a highlight of the year. The impact we had was the highlight. We had to work our socks off to make it happen, but the impact was astonishing. It really helped over 101 small businesses, I think it was something like 106 in the end, so 109. But I spoke to at least a third of them myself, Sean the same. It really was, it was a moving experience having come from, as you'll, as the listeners will know, a relatively corporate institutional government background to be working on a campaign like that. And I'd be having that sort of impact was really meaningful. So for the duration of the campaign, Shop Ethical Instead, which ran officially from the 1st of October to the 22nd of December, we reached over 4.7 million people, which was incredible. And that was that centralised approach to kind of combining the audience of all of these tiny brands that were just really struggling to get cut through on their own channels and, you know, just wouldn't have ever been able to afford that level of reach in advertising spend and then what was really powerful was we partnered with ecology as our impact partners and they very kindly agreed to sponsor 
the planting of one tree for every sale for every brand involved over the Black Friday weekend. So from the beginning of Black Friday to the end of Cyber Monday, and that resulted in 5,858 trees. And when we initially were discussing the possibility of doing an impact partnership, we held some focus groups with the brands involved and got them to project for us what they thought their sales were going to be. And it was really interesting because they were saying how difficult that was because buyer behavior has changed so much since the pandemic. But we kind of worked out that our best case scenario was going to sit around 4,000 sales over that weekend. So there was a 46% uptick in sales, which we attribute to a direct result of the Shop Ethical Instead campaign. And obviously at this point in time where things are so challenging for small businesses and they really are kind of, you know, every penny is making such a difference to them to see that level of sales come in. And this will be the difference for some of those businesses as to whether they survive this year or not. So I think that was really, really powerful to kind of firsthand see that impact. And we're doing a lot of follow-up with the brands now. We're offering every brand that was involved marketing reviews so they can get together with Andrew and I and we'll go through their marketing plans, their strategies for the year ahead, just to make sure that they really do kind of survive and thrive into this year and we are hearing what a positive impact that had and how powerful it was for them to reach that combined audience and I think for us that was obviously really rewarding but also because this was methodology that hadn't been used in retail before so although we were exhausted and we worked our socks off and the team did an incredible job under really kind of high pressure to turn it all around and and get everything created we've said that we're going to run that now for every retail milestone throughout the year because for small businesses that is just such powerful methodology that they just wouldn't be able to deploy on their own it doesn't work for individual brands it's about that collective audience and that centralized approach one of my favorite things last year was actually one of my favorite things from the year before which is something that clear channel the out of home people they did a thing where they started it off about two years ago where in various cities southampton derby a few others they take the bus shelters that they put their advertising hoardings on and they make the roof of them into bee gardens this is a great thing for being able to get bees and things like that in in the center of town. I think it's just, I think it's a really lovely sort of idea. And I've always loved it. I like the fact that a company, a global company like Clear Channel is trying to do something that is quite small and doesn't really take much from them in order to do something good. And that's kind of what we were talking about at the beginning, about people making small changes and, and that all combining to help part of bigger changes but i think they it, it, i just think it's a really nice thing and i've loved to see them doing that and in some ways to offset the fact that they do do a lot of screens and such like which take up electricity so they are having an environmental impact so it's some way of, of i guess trying to offset and lessen that but i just think it's a really nice initiative one of our brands in Shop Ethical Instead was Green and Blue Nature, who are based in Cornwall and they make bee bricks. And they have been involved in Brighton and Hove Council, making it part of the legislation now that new builds have to include bee bricks and swift blocks. Was that with Hubbub? Yes. I remember doing a piece on that for Ethical Marketing News. They are lovely and he is a bee specialist, relatively knowledgeable. And they build 
bricks that go into your building that you can stand alone. They do planters and all sorts, and they do stuff for birds and bats, and it just building it into the infrastructure of society. As we said at the very beginning, regulate it, make it mandatory, and nobody will ever have to think about why we don't have any bees. And it's completely safe because solitary bees are non-swarming. Well, thank you, guys. I think that's it's been nice to have a little bit of a chat and to catch up. We, we've not spoken for a little bit, so it's lovely to see everyone again. We will be back soon. And one thing I'd like to say is if you've got anything interesting that's happened to you this year or anything you'd like to share with us, any campaigns you've run, ethical campaigns that you'd like to share with us or just have a chat or anything, then email us at submissions at ethicalmarketingnews.com and we can maybe have a chat or we could do a piece on you or or whatever. But we will be back soon. The second part of this podcast is an interview with Andrew Sussman from the Institute of Advertising Ethics. I did this interview ages ago and for a variety of reasons, we've not managed to get it out. So apologies to Andrew and the Institute of Advertising Ethics, but we hope you enjoy it. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please click that subscribe button and we will see you later. Goodbye from me. Goodbye. Bye. Hi, and today's interview is with Andrew Sussman from the Institute for Advertising Ethics in Washington. Is that right? In New York and Washington. Can you tell us a bit about yourself then and how you got into the industry? Sure. And thanks for having me on, Stuart. Like any kid, I tried to imitate my parents. My mother was a professor of psychology. She understood people. My father was a trial lawyer. He tried to persuade people. And after I graduated college, I came to New York to get into advertising. I told people that if you put understanding and persuading together, that's advertising. I told 91 people that until I got hired. And then I worked at YNR and Time Inc., which were the leading ad and media companies at that time. And I fell in love with the ad business and I learned from great masters. And after that, I founded one of the first content and context marketing companies with Procter and Gamble. But I will tell you what I think is the most important thing that I've learned in all of this in operating a company with Procter and Gamble, which was based on delivering content to people, which was sponsored by an advertiser, but was non-advertorial and really focusing on providing value. We proved that you could create gratitude through advertising, through high trust advertising, which would outperform traditional advertising, traditional interruptive hard sell advertising. And I'll give you a story to illustrate, which is we produced a content program, which was called the Daily Cat, targeted at cat owners, cat enthusiasts. And we would, on a weekly basis, be putting out audience reports. And after a while, these audience reports become a blur. You see billions of impressions. What does it really mean? And one day we received a note from an elderly lady in Kansas City, Missouri. And that woman uh, lived alone without any family or relatives around, no friends, uh, with a cat, her own beloved cat. And every day that cat would favor her oriental rug over the litter box. And every day this woman had to bend over at great pains to herself and clean up that mess. That woman had written us a letter to tell us that a solution we provided in the Daily Cat had fixed that problem. 
for her and that that really changed her life, literally changed her life. And fast forward six months later, we're in a boardroom at P&G. The head of the pets division comes in and said he wants to be in the room because we are the highest performing media vehicle of any vehicles that he's purchased. For every dollar that they've invested, they're getting $4 back. Now, the question is, is there any relationship between the service that was provided to that woman and the economic return that P&G gave from advertising that provided that service. And we think the answer is obvious. So there are ways to do ethical advertising correctly that outperform more overt or unwelcome advertising. That is the key learning of my career. It's great to see that these little things can make such a difference to people's lives, things that you just don't even think about. Obviously, now you're doing the Institute for Advertising Ethics. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that came about? Yes. The IAE is right now the only independent body that's addressing the urgent and complex issues of ethical standards across all aspects of advertising communications. And of course, trust is essential for a market to mature. And the IAE was created to support and perpetuate ethical behavior across the ad industry. The IAE recognizes the need for the industry to conduct itself with consumers in a fair and forthright manner. We focus on all advertising-supported marketing communications across all media platforms, and that includes data usage tied to those communications. Our first focus is certification. Over time, the Institute for Advertising Platforms will make new norms, new government, and a new way of looking at advertising, and that'll create a new and better bargain between individuals and brands. Interesting that there isn't anywhere else doing this. Um, Have you guys been going for a long time? Well, the IAE was founded as a working group at the University of Missouri uh, about 10 years ago. We were, however, only incorporated two years ago as a formal nonprofit. In the interim, we built a body of knowledge, published a standard textbook on advertising ethics, and had several thousand conversations where we pulled out the most urgent and important issues for practitioners. And over the last year, we've been putting into market the certified ethical advertising executive as our primary focus. Just for people who listen to our podcast a lot, one of our previous guests, Ben Downing, you've been working closely with him on supplying certified ethical advertising executive course to the staff and clients of Havas. Can you tell us a bit about that accreditation and how something like that comes around? Yes. So what's super interesting about our industry is that unlike, for instance, law, finance, medicine, architecture, engineering, so many other professions, we have no ethical certification in place. And that is both a cause and a result of the state of the industry, that the industry for the last 20 years has remained the least trusted profession, uh, still not edging up against used car salesmen. Part of this has to do with the lack of professionalism inside of the industry. David Ogilvie once said that a profession is something that's hard to get into and easy to get kicked out of, like medicine and law that we were talking about before. But without any certification, there's no reference point. So it's no wonder that young people coming into the industry, for instance, 
who don't have any training on ethics accompanying their technical training have no reference point. Voss has moved first and done this at scale. They have made available to their 9,000 employees and clients this, this certification. And that certification is available online. So a certified ethical advertising executive is an individual who's completed a minimum of 70% correct answers on a series of 13 topics that are administered as part of the IAE program. Of course, that's only a technical definition. The real meaning is that, for instance, Havas, in this case, is leading the way. They're, they're aiming to equip a new generation of ethical advertising executives, of people who can promote ethics in our industry, people who can turn ethical frameworks into actionable steps, people that can help organizations mitigate ethical risks, and professionals who communicate effectively about those ethical challenges. Ethical risks are becoming much more evident, especially in the last three to six months, the risks associated with ethical breaches that aren't necessarily illegal, but are unethical and the consumer backlash and the government interest that can result. It's, it's interesting what you said there. So do you feel that a lot of the people coming into the industry, so the younger people have a much stronger sort of grasp of the ethical dilemmas involved than maybe some of the people who've worked there for longer periods? There is no doubt that the kind of cliche of Gen Z and the younger generation coming in more ethically oriented is it is true that young people want to work at ethical companies. I, I saw, and I've mentioned this to a number of people in a very simple example, which is I saw an ad in advertising age trying to hire young people for sales positions or marketing positions and a company saying you won't have to, you won't feel slimy working here, which really sums it up. Young people don't want to feel slimy. Paris polls even show that there's been a reversal in terms of priorities of work. Two-thirds focus on how and what people are spending their time on, one-third on wages versus the opposite before the pandemic. So it is a differentiator if you want to hire talent. And it's a differentiator because other companies want to work with other trusted companies. So very much so. And to take advantage of that, one of the things that we're doing is partnering with universities. Right now, seven universities starting in fall here will begin to make mandatory the IAE certification as part of marketing education. So that we'll get to the point where every at the end of the fall, we'll have a thousand or two thousand graduates of marketing programs coming out of the school pre-certified as they go into the industry with that built in. So many young people are going into the business and having questions, but not knowing or having any way to answer those questions. Some of them quit. In other instances, for instance, at large platform companies, You've seen younger workers striking, not for higher wages, but on ethical grounds. So there, that social capital has very real economic capital uh, implication. Yes, that's interesting. We did a podcast a while back on Spotify and some of the things that we thought they had done wrong within their various dealings over the last sort of 18 months. And one of the things that Andrew, our crisis management specialist, picked up on that I hadn't considered as much as pretty much what you're saying there, that you're looking at dealing the best, the brightest and the best, the younger dynamic people coming in, and they don't want to work for a company if they don't relate to the ethics. Right. There's there's something in uh, that, that is almost speaks for itself, but there's actually an ethical test called the sleep test, which is can you sleep at night comfortably knowing what you're doing? And that pretty much makes clear, <laughs> makes clear to people um, 
where their stance is, it gets to the intuition. But people people want to work in places aligned with their beliefs. And that's become much more relevant than it was, say, five years ago, or certainly a decade ago, acutely relevant. So do you think that the advertising and marketing industry have a worse problem than for ethics than, than other industries? I do. Um, and I think that could be a number of factors. Some of the factors could include that there's an absolute absence of norms. Uh, there, there hasn't been a understood set of principles and practices for doing ethical advertising. So we could hardly expect that people would have been conforming to a set of norms or even knowing what they were. The second element is that if you go into an industry and the reputation of that industry is that it is unethical, your expectation of the environment is, is that it will be unethical. And that's your priming. So. Students who are going into unethical environments, even if they're very well-meaning, may not feel permission to raise ethical issues. Those might be considered to be even naive or unwelcome. Part of this is to raise the professional identity of advertising by having a set of principles, by having a certification similar to other industries, and by having a base level of acceptable thresholds for behavior. Those are some of the causal factors. And of course, the nature of advertising itself, which is delicate. Uh, you have to understand communications, which is complicated. You have to understand ethics, which is complicated to create ethical communications. And that requires some thought. So I do think that we have problems. Also, some of the there has been a self-regulatory implosion. Even Bob Liedis, who is a friend, who is at the Association of National Advertisers, whose responsibility, along with the other trade associations, was self-regulation, failed. And even Bob Liedis is honest enough to say that there's been a self-regulatory implosion. Many in previous generations, let's say print, there were bad actors that were selling swampland and powders for illnesses, they got pushed out by communities of respectable advertisers who were driven by the consumers calling Congress. Same thing happened in radio and television broadcast. Consumers got mad. They called Congress. Congress threatened to regulate. And there were new rules and conventions put in place called advertising acceptance or standards and practices, which exist. Right now, we don't have any of those intermediating quality controls inside of our industry. And uh, that's a serious problem. But we shouldn't think that our problems exist in a historical vacuum. They don't. And this is just now our time to fix them. And these are the problems of this generation. It always seems to me that anytime you've got a business or an area of business regulating themselves, no matter how good the intentions when they start out, it never works as a long-term plan. It doesn't seem to. There, um, the 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 only modes of self-regulation that typically do work are called audited self-regulation, where in some respect the entity is reporting to the government, is not a part of the government, but is putting out reports to the government. An example of that in the United States would be FINRA, the Financial Regulatory Association, which is self-regulated so that you have the scale of the companies working to watch uh, rather than the FTC, which is only a thousand people, but reports into the SEC and is monitored by the SEC. So that that is called audited self-regulation or co-regulation. There has to be a government backstop. Otherwise, the incentives of the companies are to move to maximum profit regardless. They can't be expected to set their own rules. They're you can't expect people to remain 
neutral and something that they're possibly passionate about in that way as well. You can totally believe you're doing the right thing, but it doesn't mean you are doing the right thing. What, what advice would you have for small companies who are just so maybe starting out, maybe don't feel that they're in a place to look for certification or anything like that, but want to become or be as ethical as possible? I would, I'd go to our website, I, uh, as biased a recommendation as that might be. I believe that is a strong recommendation. I go to iaethics.org or iae.live, and I'd start by looking at the principles and by reviewing the commentary on the principles. And if those principles were appealing, then I would I would have somebody in my company take the certification. The certification is priced at $25 for students and $350 for professionals. There are students that have any money issues. We provide scholarship. We've tried to make the certification as reasonable for companies as we can. By doing so, you get a full overview of what the major issues are and you'll begin to understand how to balance the values of your company against the particular situations. Also on the site under the resources tab is a ethical dilemma solving scheme or uh, steps and process, a five-step process, our version 1.0, which we're continuing to update and welcome a commentary on. And in addition, we'd welcome anyone, anyone, call us or write us at any time, and we will be back in touch with them. I'm sure our email and our contact information is on our site. So we can put it on the podcast page as well. Sure. Another thing that would happen is if, if you become certified, you join a community of other certificates. We have about, I think, a thousand certificates now. We aim to get up to 10,000 by the end of the year. And by doing so, you can connect with other people, many of whom may be facing the same issues that you are and find out how they resolve peer to peer. That sounds really interesting. Our listenership covers all over the world, but primarily our two biggest regions are Britain and, and Western Europe and in America. So I'm assuming that your certification is, is a worldwide. It is. Um, right now, we focused on America. The principles uh, do apply worldwide, but we're working with Ben and we'll be working with a woman named Ann Schmucker, who runs the data policy for Mercedes and is also a student of Kant in Germany. And we will be adapting the course to those 10, larger, 10 largest markets because most of the people involved in the IAE, Procter, and MasterCard, and so on. These are all global companies. Microsoft are all global companies. So yes, we will be adapting that later this year, probably early next year. When we spoke to Ben. One of the things we discussed was the difference between how ethical marketing is viewed in America and how it's viewed in Britain. I think uh, America is farther along in exploiting digital technologies without regards to the external effects of those technologies, like in, in terms of sheer capabilities. I think that with Google and Facebook and the ad tech industry here, capabilities are stronger, but I feel that the uh, character capabilities, the ethical capabilities, the awareness of the issues are much stronger. Britain, Digital Services Act, various EU things, and America can't, can't necessarily operate without Europe as a partner. So Europe by default is and Britain, by default, is kind of leading us. And I love that. I, you know, you'd want to play, you want to play with people better than yourself. So I'm super grateful for that. I, th I see that. I see that just like my mom's Midwestern weather makes itself over here to New York in a few days. The same thing with the realizations that you make about arms 
And the same thing about realizations that you make about privacy and protections. They, 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 they are making their way here. So we're wending off of you in that respect. The world finds itself, I think, in totally unknown territory since COVID. And I think that ethics is becoming more baked in, but it's also a little bit more shaky. It was, and I think that's something that often as marketers, we do forget. But it's a really difficult one to get right, I think. It's true. Although there are some distinctions. For instance... In a common example, you could use a screwdriver to build a house or to build a concentration camp. And the screwdriver is probably a pretty morally neutral object. But an algorithm or a technology that's built to capture people's attention or a algorithm that's set up based on historical biases, these are not necessarily ethically neutral tools. And so from the very beginning, there need to be questions asked about what type of tool am I building? And what, what are some of the worst possible things that could happen? And how should I create it? And who should I create it with? And what impact should it have? And so on. There was a major case in the United States of a company called SafeGraph. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but SafeGraph uh, was invested in by some of the very leading investors in digital media in New York, SafeGraph was a company that offered location data. One of the pieces of data it was found out that SafeGraph was selling was IDs on women who had visited abortion clinics, customers of which would be either pro-life people who would presumably be questioning their decision or authorities who would presumably be investigating them for breaking that law when it became a law. And this was not illegal but it was highly unethical and it was reported and the value, it could be argued, and I've had discussions with some of the investors, it could be argued that the value of SafeGraph as an entity has been seriously damaged by something that had nothing to do with it being illegal, but had everything to do with being unethical. And if that company had in advance asked a set of questions, they may have prevented themselves and more importantly, a lot of other people, a lot of pain and suffering. Um, So though there are multiple constituents here that need to be brought in, the investors need to be brought in to do ethical due diligence before they fund companies. The suppliers need uh, and are, and there are many of them are actually in front of this trying to differentiate based on ethics as Ben is, uh, to a lesser extent as Interpublic is, Uh, because they know that the advertisers themselves are becoming increasingly sensitive to advertising risk. The buyers is one segment. Wall Street is another segment. In other words, there are risks associated with unstewarded advertising data, algorithmic influencer practices that can do real harm to companies that we are invested in. Therefore, we should probably start to get some disclosures out of those companies about what type of marketing they're doing because we don't want to be associated with companies that are doing that because they have a habit of losing value. That's Wall Street. The government is is another piece of this, which is the FTC, which is aided when 10,000 certificates are practicing business in an ethical way because this becomes a prevailing practice, which becomes best practice, which can become law. So all of this is very systemic. It's not an immediate fix. But it's also very doable because we're not inventing this. These practices exist in other industries. We're just reapplying them here. 
Uh, and that's the really super exciting part about this is the change. The change is real. And it's being enabled by this kind of once in a generation situation where you have consumers that know this is a bad bargain and they're calling Congress. Congress and government who sees this on a bipartisan way as super rich pickings to attack these bad practices because of the consumers or individuals and the companies that get it now that they have serious legal risk and need to get ahead of the gavel, possibly by even differentiating themselves onto the good side where they might be able to win a business that they wouldn't otherwise. So those are the those are the aspects. That's mere. That, that is my opinion of like the landscape of how all of this is changing. Looking at it from an external perspective, as I guess we do in the UK, it always looks like America, specifically the politics, is so partisan that if one side wants to push one thing, it's difficult to get the other side to agree to it. So it's great to hear there are some things we can get agreement on. Right. This is this is the achievement of the ad tech industry that they have done what nobody else could, united Republicans and Democrats in their contempt of their practices. So that, uh, I suppose, leads us on to, and you may even have just covered it, if there was one industry change, one thing worldwide that you could do that you think would just make it far more ethical, make it a better industry, what would you do? I I said it earlier, and I do really believe it. I'd put 10,000 certificates into the system as soon as possible because that's going to be the needle mover. 10,000 people in the system, which will mean that essentially we'll have people in every company that are ethically educated. And those will be the eyes and ears and hands of these principles. Yeah, I think it can only be good that the education is is getting out there. People are a lot more aware of it now. No doubt. And I think that can only be a good thing. When when we set up the site, I had a real ethical dilemma about, do I cover stories about companies that I know are not ethical but on those occasions that they do ethical things. And that was a really difficult one to work out whether I should or not, because am I then sort of almost sort of pushing a greenwashing agenda if I'm doing things like that? Yeah. But at the same time, if these companies don't get credit for the good things they do, there's absolutely no impetus for them even to try and do the good things. Correct. I do believe that even if people have made mistakes and been bad, they can change. I do believe in the possibility of people's change, I guess. I've not been perfect. Nobody I know has been perfect. I'm still learning ways that I've been a jerk. And I expect others are too. So we shouldn't suppress people's ability or efforts to do good if we think they're genuine and that they're not greenwashing. That's up for us to use smart trust on, I guess. But yeah, I think that's the right decision is to try to enroll the people that have done the damage as part of the solution and to get them into a position where they can show that they mean it by giving and sacrificing and doing. It is difficult to to know about greenwashing. If if Shan was here, she is an absolute expert on greenwashing. She had literally just written a book on it. I had read something recently which made a lot of sense to me, which was, of course, companies are nonstop talking about being agile. This is a world where it's difficult to plan. Things are changing so quickly. The variables are multiplying, et cetera, et cetera. How do you plan? Well, you essentially focus on being agile with principles, being agile with principles. So you have a set of principles that you can rely upon as anchors, but you can execute on those with agility. Um, That is also uh, kind of part of the equation of what you guys are talking about, that that people don't have kind of moral vertigo within within their companies. If you go to the big companies, no matter who they are, even the companies I'd say that are generally better, I think you've got to 
sort of weigh out the size of the company and the history of the company and that not everyone's always going to get it right. And that sometimes you look at things they do and you go, Ooh. so we've got to work with them. But what we have to do is try and make them be better. Yes. And and there are people inside. It's not like there's one soul. Absolutely. Sometimes some of the most ethical companies tend to be family owned companies. They can operate for the longer term. Their name is on the door and they care about what their perception is in the community. And there is a tendency for family companies to be more ethical. One of the one such company that I was working with for a while, a couple of years at least, was called Empower in Cincinnati. They were very focused on trust and transparency. They founded the company based on, I mean, 30 years ago, it was a woman-founded company. A woman came out of Proctor who founded the company based on transparency. So it's often that smaller companies, back to your question earlier, can use transparency and ethics to their advantage in ways that larger companies cannot as a wedge. One of the things we discussed in our last podcast actually was Oatly and them moving from being a smaller company into a bigger company and taking investment from companies that were deemed not to be as, as ethical as they were. And that caused a bit of a backlash. But there's no such thing as a, as a purely good and ethical investment company, pretty much. So you've got to, if your company wants to, to grow, sometimes it's going to be difficult. Um, and there is a difficult question, I think, there about big companies versus small companies. And for a small company becoming a big company, do you have to sacrifice something? To do things because you think that your competitors may be doing them. Yeah, just because as well, you know, looking for investment, you might not always have the, op- the option to get a company that has only invested in, in ethical things. True. I'm sure that you it will be hard to find any entity in the world that has pure, quote unquote, pure money operated, that has no customers uh, with moral quandaries, no suppliers with moral quandaries. None of the money or the banks that they deal with have moral quandaries, et cetera. You may be in a position where you're like a stoic living under a barrel. Again. <laughs> well, what are you working on just now? The primary focus is the certification and the partnerships that we're forming for the certification with the Voss, as you know, through their learning and development, also coming up with Trade Desk, another corporate champion, and then working with industry associations like the American Advertising Federation, the Alliance for Audited Media to distribute this certification to their member bases. That is our uh, first strategy. And then as we go forward, probably over the next three to six months, more of a direct marketing strategy on the certification. But that is our route to the first 10,000. And that is our number one objective and key results. I mean, I'm really hoping that that all comes together because it does sound like that's certainly the starting place for a key change throughout the industry. Yes, I agree. So do you have a favorite ethical campaign, something you'd recommend people look at to get an idea or something that may have influenced you or just something you've looked at and went, oh, that, they've done it right. That's the right way to do it. Hmm. Let me think about that for a moment. I actually do. There's a Nike ad about inclusion. It's called Nike Dream Crazy. Colin Kaepernick narrates Nike's epic new ad urging you to dream crazy. It's about people that were up against all of the odds and were seen as outsiders, but then used that outsiderness as their strength. That was my most inspirational, most ethical, and most effective ad. It affected people worldwide. It did. That was powerful and it was very emotional. I work with somebody and we're, we're perfect foils for each other because she, I'm extremely optimistic and she's extremely pessimistic. 
<laughs> we we balance. And so I, I have told her to avoid naive cynicism, which the Atlantic wrote about, which is the position that a cynic takes, extreme cynics say, I know everything. That's not going to work. I've seen it before. I know why it's not going to work. It's a very presumptuous position that assumes a lot of knowledge about the future. The pipeline, Excel pipeline that was built and there was opposition to, and it was always said, oh, why are you protesting? That's going to be built. There's nothing you can do to stop it. But they delayed it long enough so that interest rates went up and it became impossible to finance and build. You, you would have never known that that would have happened, but that delay was critical to prevent a keystone from being built. Do you think that in the US specifically, that the changes of government have had anything to do with the, the belief in ethics within advertising? Has, uh, ethics were very much brought to the fore by people protesting against Trump for, for better or for, for worse. I'm wondering if that desire to see ethical things done has spread throughout lots of parts of America. Oh, yes, it is this light, guys. It is supporting everything we're doing. Yes, obviously, you guys have got the uh, January the 6th things happening just now. It is, uh, yes. All of that, that psychology, even though it's not explicitly connected, people's desire for the genuine and um, people, a, a renewed kind of belief in truth, a uh, a kind of denting of, I mean, I guess Trump was a form of a cynic, the denting of the allure of such cynicism. The leaders that we have had recently, both Trump and in our case, Boris Johnson, are people who played the media so well they were media personalities. That's it. Rather than great politicians. Or statesmen, even. Yeah. That could move a country that had the gravitas to do that. And you think, okay, is that impossible in today's world, a hero? Maybe a hope is that, like in our little world of advertising, having such systems and reference points will increase the percentage of people who are upstanders. And then within that percentage of people who can be, you know, real North Stars to the community. Brilliant. Well, I will let you go and get back to your day. And I was so happy to meet you. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you so much, Andrew, for your time. And everyone, have a look at the Institute of Advertising Ethics website. It's absolutely fascinating. We'll be back soon. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast at all, please hit that subscribe button. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was edited by Stuart Mitchell. The music was by Joe McCafferty. We look forward to seeing you for the next podcast.